0: Morning, everyone. Uh, We're going to start with prayer this morning. Uh, I got a note from Marilyn Tabor that her niece, Cindy, is in the hospital, and they're having a prayer vigil for her later on today. But we're going to pray now. She's in Texas, and I believe she's been on a ventilator for two weeks and um, just asking God as a family to bring healing into her life. So let's turn our attention to God, and let's pray real quick. Our gracious Father, you are a God of great, amazing power. You spoke and the worlds came into existence. You say and the sun rises and the sun sets. There is nothing outside of your power and ability. And so we rightly come to you, a God of compassion and mercy, a God of loving kindness and a God of great healing, and ask that you would be with Cindy this very moment. And if it is your will that you would bring healing upon her body, that her voice might join the choir of all of your people singing and rejoicing in your goodness and your greatness. Lord, we pray that it would be your will to heal her and to bring her out of the hospital quickly and soon that she might be reunited with her family. We pray this in the most powerful, resurrected name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is Christmas season, and you are probably expecting a Christmas series because that's what we do in the month of December. I hate to burst that bubble, but we are not doing a specific Christmas series because it just so happens we're going through the book of Hebrews right now. And the book of Hebrews is all about Jesus Christ being the Son of God, the divine Son, who has been given all power and authority in heaven and earth. Every verse, every message is about the coming of Christ on our behalf and are rejoicing in him. So Christmas season gets extended, not just for four weeks, but as far as my plan goes, it's about 28 weeks. But don't let that scare you. It's going to be exciting every step of the way. But we are indeed looking at the goodness and greatness of Jesus Christ as he is the divine son who's been given all power and authority in heaven and earth, not just to have it, but for our benefit as his children. And we're going to be looking specifically at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 through 9. And I realize that sometimes I know I fall into the habit of thinking about Jesus, of thinking about God, and all of a sudden my mind just wanders with those questions and that it's so hard sometimes to figure God out. And sometimes we can feel that God is transcendent. Now that word is a very good word. It's a word that means he is wholly different than us, that he's not like us. He's not just a bigger, better, stronger version of us. He is completely different from us in all of his characters and natures and all of his things. He is different than us. But we can start talking about the incarnation and Jesus coming and the creation of angels and the power of angels and all of these things and our relationship to him, all the sacrifices, the temple, the Old Testament prophets. We can start to have this mind-boggling moment where we're like, but does he care about us? We know he's powerful. We know that he's able to answer prayers. We know that he performs miracles. We know that he forgives We know that he's a God of mercy, but sometimes those things can seem so far from us it feels like they're unattainable. We can't touch them. We need to stop that thinking and remind ourselves of the words of Hebrews because these words are so very practical, so very important for today. In 2021, December 5th, in Pueblo, Colorado. They're important because he spoke them to us so that we might have the benefit of the truth that stands behind it, in front of it, and on it. That we would be appreciative and thankful for the redemption that he accomplished on our behalf. And the entire book just celebrates that activity The activity of him coming, the activity of him living, the activity of him dying, and the activity of his resurrection, and most importantly, or I wouldn't say most importantly because all that's important, but on top of that, his active current role in your life right now. He is relatable, he is understandable, and he is knowable. Even though he seems very hard to nail down As far as all these grand thoughts about him, he told us that all those grand thoughts can be seen and understood in the person of Jesus Christ, who we celebrate, not just in December every year, but every day. So let's look at this, starting in verse 5 of chapter 2. It starts out with this beautiful statement, for it is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. Now remember, he's been talking about angels this whole time. He's been talking about these powerful spiritual beings and how they are insignificant compared to the role and work of Jesus Christ. They're not the same. They're not even close to equal. They're created beings by God. And Jesus Christ is in charge of it, in charge of them. It says, For it is not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. There is a tremendous, beautiful truth in that very short verse. Well, lots of truth. But the beautiful truth is that this present world that we are engaged in, this present physical, tangible world that we experienced waking up from this morning and sitting here, right here and now, this is not it. This is not the end game. This is not the fullness. This is not the completion. This is not the best it will ever be. This isn't. We are but pilgrims and sojourners in this land, looking forward to and expecting a great future, a future in which God says, I'll wipe away every tear, I'll take away every pain. I'll take away every sorrow. No longer will be, there be death and suffering, sickness, disease, but there will be beautiful physical fullness and spiritual completeness. No longer will you struggle with doubt, sorrow, pain, suffering. No longer will you doubt with depression or anger or bitterness. No longer will you doubt deal with doubt and agony and uncertainty. There will be a completeness to this life. But right here and now, we're not supposed to expect it. We're not even supposed to strive for it. That's not our end goal, is to make this life the best life we will live. We will live the best life in the fullness of time when Christ returns with all of his glory and everyone is resurrected and dealing with either that judgment or redemption, and it says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. This beautiful future glory of what God will create, which will be a new heaven and a new earth. He didn't give it to angels to take care of. He didn't give it to angels to run or rule or manage. Trivia question. This world that we have, though, is the one we're living in, right? yes. So this is the one that we have responsibilities in. Who's in charge of maintaining and overseeing this world right now? Who's in charge of that? It's it's kind of a trick question, but not really a trick question. You have to go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 to figure out the answer. Who's in charge of what's going on? We are. Whoa, Tim, did you just say that you're God? No, 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 no. Remember the story of Adam and Eve. God put them in the garden, and what did he tell them in the garden? Their role and responsibility was to do what? To manage and take care of everything. All the animals, all the fields, all the beasts, they are in charge of that. I didn't say who created it, who is sovereign over it, who manages it, and who's supposed to run it. We are. How well are we doing? There's good times and bad times to be expected, because this is not the world that we're going to end up with. We're going to end up with a new heaven a new earth, a brand new creation, a new city of God dwelling among the nations, blessing the nations in time, in time. Right after that, verse 5, the author of Hebrews discusses Psalm 8. And I think we're just going to turn there to Psalm 8. We're just going to turn there. It's not in my notes. But in Psalm 8, David writes, and uh, he's he's quoting in Psalm 8 in Hebrews 2. I really hope I don't confuse this. So let's go to Psalm 8 and see exactly what he's saying in the entire psalm. It's a very short psalm. It's one I think you're very familiar with. And then we'll come back to chapter 2 of Hebrews and kind of see its application and how he ties it together. So, Psalm 8. O Jehovah, our Lord. Listen how this starts. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look to your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, what is man That you are mindful of Him, or the Son of Man, that you care for Him? Wow, that's a question, isn't it? Have you ever stood at night looking out into the stars, which is a beautiful thing here in Pueblo where you can actually see the Milky Way spirals? When you look at that, and you start to think of how big that is, and how far away that is, and how immense this created universe is, do you not ever think, ah, oh, I'm pretty tiny. I'm pretty small. I feel almost insignificant compared to the grandness of the Rocky Mountains or the rushing of the Arkansas River or just the size of Lake Pueblo. I mean, there are things that you stand and you just look and you... Don't you get lost sometimes in that wonderment and amazement and you feel tiny because you stub your toe on a tiny rock And you're undone for the day because your toe hurts. And you look up and you see the moon and you see the stars and you see those spiral arms in the Milky Way. And I don't know about you, but my heart just leaps with joy about what God has allowed me to see and experience. And when I think of the size of it, I think I'm rather small in light of everything surrounding us. And that is exactly what the author, what David, wants you in Psalm 8 to begin to think about. Going, wow, out of all of this, why would God even spend a minute of time thinking about humanity, caring about us, engaging with us, even caring that we're sick or hurt or suffering or filled with sorrow or doubt? Why would He care about us? when we even consider ourselves in light of the rest of created nature here on earth, we're a pretty small animal. Out on our own, without our technology and our thinking, we would be desperately lost, cold, and starving. Wow, we are pretty small in the universe. Pretty small. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? He continues in verse 5 of Psalm 8. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or angels. And crowned him with glory and honor. That's true. Because unlike the rest of creation. Unlike even the angels unlike the sun, the moon, the stars, unlike the Milky Way and the galaxy and the universe, unlike any other created thing in all of existence, you are unique in God's creation because you and you alone have been made and fashioned and formed in the image of God. The stars haven't. The moon is not made in the image of God. The universe is not made in the image of God. The greatest animals that ever walked this earth, the largest, fiercest, are not made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. Your likeness is His likeness. Not physically, but knowing righteousness and loving spirituality. That is our unique imprint that God has given us. The angels have not been made in His image. Only you have. And there is a glory and an honor and a specialness. Now, before you get it to your head going, oh, Tim just told me I'm special, therefore all these things need to be given to me. No, no, I'm not talking about that kind of special. I'm talking about before God, you have immense value, not because of what you've done or what you've not done, but because he made you in his image. And it makes you valuable. It makes every human life valuable. Regardless of age, regardless of developmental age, regardless of skin color, regardless of health, beauty, or wealth, every human being is valuable before God because they're made in the image of God. And that is why God has such a terrible punishment and judgment when someone murders a human being. Death. The death penalty capital punishment. So severe. But he continues, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And then he describes, I think in part, what Genesis was telling us in Genesis 1 and 2. All the sheep, all the oxen, all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the heaven, all the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, So those things are all under our domain to exercise authority and rule over them. To be caretakers, not to abuse it and exploit it, but to manage it and use it, ultimately and always, for God's glory. And we will receive benefit when we do it with respect and realizing our place is a caretaker not an abuser. And he ends in verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, Jehovah, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Again, pins the very last verse to our attention that this is still not about us. It's not about our glory, our honor. It's not about our power, our dominion. It's not about our work. It's not about what we oversee. It's not even about we've been made in his image. It is about him. His glory, His honor, His name being praised. Our name does not get praised in this role. His name gets praised in our role. So that's Psalm 8 in a quick, brief nutshell. Now we go back to Hebrews chapter 2. And to get the context, I'm just going to read verse 5 again. Then I'm going to read verse 6 through 8 up to verse 9. For it was not angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now listen how the author applies it. Now in putting everything in subjection to him. Well, it's gotten singularly purposeful about one person. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Wow. He's he's kind of taken that psalm and made it very applicable to one person who was made for a little while lower than the angels, still crowned in all of his glory and majesty, still incredibly worthy of praise and worship, still has everything under his authority. But who was the author applying this to at this time? Jesus. He's applying it to Jesus. You see, Jesus at a moment in time and space and history Was made lower than the angels once. When did that happen? At his incarnation, at Christmas time, when he left his eternal throne and took on this human flesh, he became man, fully man. And in such, for a moment in time, became a little lower than the angels. Not his value, not his importance but rather the role that he was going to fulfill. He was limited. He had to eat, drink, sleep. The angels don't. We have no information about that at all in order to survive. But he did. He had to eat, sleep, drink in order to survive. He was made lower than the angels for a brief moment. But we're told in that verse 8, In putting everything under subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Wow, is that an understatement, right? We don't see everything right now under subjection to him? Do you see everything under subjection to him? I don't even see my own heart under subjection to him at all times, let alone the rest of this universe. The rest of this universe seems out of control. You turn on the news, How much glory is there in God in the news? You know, there are times where I I dread clicking, opening my email because my email takes me to Google and Google has news on it. I dread clicking that one little button that takes me to that splash page of news Because it is unbelievably depressing, infuriating at times, unbelievable how people are treating each other, what people are saying about each other, how people are dividing each other, how people are just simply hating each other, how people are murdering each other. Oh my, when has there been a week? A week where all the news has been happy. When was the last time you remember that? You might remember a day where you didn't see any bad news until the next day you go, oh, that happened yesterday, great. But I can't wait for a time where you click on the news and there's nothing no murder, no rape, no looting, no pillaging, no war, no famine. No disease. Yeah, you're right. The world is not fully under subjection to him yet. We do not see everything under subjection to him. It's not that he's not in control of it. He hasn't clearly ended it from being part of our experience. And he won't until he comes again the second time in his glory and his power. In his majesty. He then says, or the author then says in verse 9, something about the importance of Jesus. He says, but when? But we see him, who for a little while has been made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So there's no doubt who the author is thinking about this entire time from verse 5 to the end. He's thinking about Jesus. It does apply to us, but it ultimately applies to Jesus, the divine Son, who came and was born a humble babe in a manger, died for our sins and rose again, and was promised all glory and power and authority on heaven and earth. But we see Him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Why was he specifically crowned with glory and honor? Because of the suffering of death. Have you ever seen someone die? I've seen people die. Been right there when they breathe their last breath. I don't see much glory and honor in that. I don't see how someone can be crowned with glory and honor. It's unbelievably sad. Even a Christian, it's unbelievably sad for the family to see someone die. What was different about his death? That he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Well, he tells us, So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, his death was not like ours. It wasn't like a grandma's or an aunt's or a cousin's or an uncle's or a friend's. It wasn't like that at all. Yes, he breathed his last last, and gave up his spirit and said, it is finished. He died. His heart stopped. His brain stopped functioning and firing neurons. He was dead. but it was not like our death. His death accomplished something that the world had been waiting for for thousands of years. That it would end sin. That it would end the rule and reigning of Satan, the devil. That it would put an end to his power. That it would put an end to his voice that it would put an end to the voice of rebellion against God once and for all. And seal as a down payment for each of us that believe in him eternal life. Eternal life. Not just heaven, but the fruits and gifts of a relationship with God the Father forever and ever and ever. And that is what Jesus accomplished. That is why his death was crowned with glory and honor. That is why his death is celebrated and resound around the world. That is why he has that object of absolute affection on our part. Is that only he was able to do that. Only he accomplished it. Only he tasted in 2 Corinthians 5:12 it says for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ or the righteousness of God in him Christ who knew no sin made lower than the angels that he might bear that sin became sin for us Now you might have a couple reactions to that the first reaction was Well, Tim, you know what? I know I do some bad things, but it's not all that bad. I'm not a murderer, and I'm not in prison. You know, I mean, you're making this mountain out of a molehill. I mean, come on. What I do is not that bad. Yeah, I lie sometimes, but it's to protect people. I steal sometimes because, you know what? I earned it, and I just didn't get it. You know, I'm mean to people because they're mean to me. And you may may think that your sin is not all that bad, that you didn't need someone to die on your behalf. Your sin, no matter how small you think it is compared to others, it's sin. And it is rotten to the core. It has affected every part of your life to the point that you are prideful that your sin's not all that bad compared to others. We can stop right there. Yes, your sin is bad. Another response that you might have to that is the question, why? Why would he do that for me? I know my sin is bad. I know that I have harmed and hurt people. I know that I don't live according to your word the way I should Why would you die for someone like me who's insignificant compared to the moon and the stars? Why would you even care about me? I have disappointed you so many times. Why would you die for someone like me? And there you have. The definition of grace. There's no answer to that question except that he chose to love you. And you can shake your head all you want. I can't believe he loves me. I can't believe he tastes death for me. I can't believe he died for me. I can't believe that he would forgive me. I can't believe... And there comes a point where I think you have to be woke up and say, that's a very false sense of humility. Because he did die for you. And he does love you. And you need to accept that message and believe it. Stop second guessing it. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop thinking that you're too far off for him to love you and care for you. He does. And that is a beautiful tension of salvation because you have, on one hand, amazing grace. And on the same side, you have a sense of your own sin. But God forgives that disparity. Even that disparity between the greatness and weight of my sin and the goodness and blessedness of grace, He forgives that disparity and makes us whole. At the end of uh, John chapter 12, and we're not going to turn there, I'm just going to read a real quick verse. At the end of John chapter 12, or actually in the middle of it, He explains to us why He came and died. And he did not come and die so that you would have a better life, so that you would have it easy in this life, so that things would go your way in this life, so that you would be able to cope with the trials and temptations of this life. Those are good benefits, but he came for one reason, to die and taste death so that you might be freed from the pains and sorrows of death. Amen? We're going to have communion this morning, and I'm going to ask the elders to come up. And in this very selfless act, when we come forward and take of the elements, we are declaring in a real, tangible way that we can't do it. Our death cannot atone for sin. We need someone else, and that someone else is displayed before us as Jesus Christ. Now, if you've never had communion with us before, that's fine. All believers are welcome to take it. We ask that you would just be mindful that we're gonna move towards the center and walk towards the front and then go back to your seats and then take it for yourself in the seat. Now, these are little self-contained things that you have to peel the top off to get the, the cracker, then peel it again to get the juice, uh, but we've done it now for a year, so I think everybody's gonna be able to figure that out. If you need help, just raise your hand, we'll help you. Uh, but let's uh, enter into this time With prayer. Lord, we come before your majestic throne knowing that we need you, Father, every day. We need you more this day than the next. So, Father, meet us here in this celebration of you tasting death and becoming victorious over it. Forgive us of our sins, cleanse us of the unrighteousness, cleanse us of pride and arrogance of self-righteousness. Cleanse us of judging others. Cleanse us of being silent when we should have spoken for your truth. Cleanse us, Father, from our weakness of faith, from our thoughts of despair, our anger, our depression. Cleanse us, Father, and make us right before your throne. In your name we pray. Amen.
1: As we finish up, would you guys stand with us? How great the chasm that lay between us and how high the mountain I could not climb in desperation I turned to the morning that stilled the promise, your buried body began to breathe out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim. Jesus, yours is the Broken every chain is salvation
0: I pray that he is your living hope. And if he isn't, give me a chance to talk with you sometime today or this week. Until next week, God bless, have a wonderful week, and praise God. Bye.